Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the series was prompted in some ways by a book that I recently read by a prominent evangelical pastor who suggested rather radically that Christians should really unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Now, it may be that he kind of overstated the case, and, uh, you know, um, I'm not quite sure. The man is a good man. He's a godly man. I think he was saying what he said from the best of motivations. But the idea of ditching the Old Testament and leaving it behind and saying that it's not relevant to Christians, I think, is profoundly mistaken. Now, I understand why he said what he said. He's trying to reframe uh, the apologetic task for Christians for a new generation. And he notes that most people who deconvert or leave the faith have done so because they've lost faith in the Scriptures. And the scriptures he says that they basically lose faith in almost always is the Old Testament. So what he's trying to do essentially is saying if we remove the Old Testament, then our apologetic task is made so much easier. Well, that might be true. However, I think the radical answer to that problem creates more problems than it solves. And one of the great problems that it introduces is that it completely fails to see that the Bible is a story. It's a narrative from start to finish. It's not a book of laws and rules and ways to live, although all those are included in the, in the narrative. It is essentially God's story. And when you break into the middle of the story and cut loose the first portion of the story, you really are left wondering, why is this happening in Act 4? Because you don't know Act 1, 2, and 3. If, let, me, let me try and illustrate this. I don't know how many of you are Tolkien fans or you know, you've read Lord of the Rings or you've seen the movies. But you'll know that Lord of the Rings is essentially done in three volumes. There is The Fellowship of the Ring, Volume 1, The Two Towers, Volume 2, and The Return of the King, Volume 3. And of course you know that there are three movies that go along with the three volumes of the book. If you try and watch Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and you haven't read Part 1 or Part 2, it's going to be very difficult for you to pick up the story. Actually, if you want to read and really have a good understanding of Lord of the Rings, it's very, very helpful to have read The Hobbit. And even before The Hobbit, there's a book called The, the Silmarillion. And both the, the Lord of the Rings is built on both those two stories. Each one of them draws from and builds on the other one. As I say, if you pick up volume three of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, without the benefit of the earlier stories, while there might be portions of the story that you find uplifting and moving, perhaps Frodo's bravery or Sam's loyalty, mostly it will go completely over your head because the character and the quality of the characters and the nature of this ring that everybody seems to either want or not want, as the case may be, will completely elude you. And you'll be thinking... What kind of ring is it? Is it an engagement ring? Is it a wedding ring? Is it a signet ring? Without knowing the previous story, you'll be in grave danger of reading it through a modern anacrostic lens, and a lens that makes the story obsolete, and you try and read it in modern terms, and it will distort the story. 
you'll be thinking, why does this character called Gollum keep popping up? Where's he from? And why does he have this obsession for the ring? Because that story's in, in the earlier books. You can't know those things without knowing the earlier story. Let me, tra- let me change the analogy and try and, and push this point home. Kenneth Bailey is a Middle Eastern biblical scholar, and he gave an an illustration once that I found very helpful. He told the story of an Englishman trying to tell the story of King Arthur and Camelot to an audience that's made up of Alaskan Inuits. Now, as you know, being basically derived from English stock, or at least being influenced by English literature, Camelot and King Arthur is full of castles, dark forests, dragons and damsels in distress. And there is, from an English perspective, a set of assumptions and expectations as to how the characters in the story will act. I mean, we know that knights will show loyalty and obedience to the king, and that they'll act with chivalry and courage. Dragons will be, they'll breathe fire and they'll be a menace to all. And damsels, well, damsels will be damsels. For an English audience, there is a pool of images and stock figures that are well understood and don't require any comment or explanation. Bailey comments with regard these assumptions, expectations, images and figures, and he says this, they constitute the grand piano on which the English storyteller deftly plays. And then he goes on to say, for an Inuit audience, that grand piano doesn't exist and therefore is not heard. They don't share the common culture. They don't share the history or the images of the English audience. So the story is very strange to them. What's a castle? Is it it a big igloo? What's a forest? If the king can command the knight's obedience, can he do the same for the day? Bailey slams home the point by saying, when it comes to the Bible, you and I are the Inuits. We're not Hebrew. Generally, we we often don't hear the grand piano playing in the background. And if you remove the Old Testament, we are even further deafened to the sound of the grand piano playing. If you try and enter the story of Jesus without having read the story that leads up to him, that's the Old Testament, now you may end up with a photo montage composed of random stories from the Gospels, often topped off with whatever fashionable image of him is going around in the culture, but you'll have a Jesus of your own making. You'll have a Jesus the revolutionary, Jesus the laid-back beatnik, or Jesus the dynamic CEO, and he's none of those things. You cannot understand the story without knowing the earlier story. That's why the Old Testament cannot simply be cut and set adrift. You'll be lost in Act 4. You'll be lost in the return of the king without having the benefit of the fellowship of the ring and the two towers, the hobbit or the silmarillion. Christopher Wright says this. He says, the deeper you understand the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus. Remember, perhaps a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact that Jesus was talking on one occasion to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, and he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, it is they that bear witness of me. Now, when he's talking of the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written. And he's saying, you're in the scriptures looking for life. You don't understand the scriptures are about me. In Luke chapter 24, he walks up 
on the Emmaus Road with two broken-hearted disciples. They've just had their dreams dashed through the crucifixion of the one that they thought was the Messiah. This Messiah, now resurrected, joins them and walks alongside them and they don't recognize him. And he starts to talk to them and they share what had happened and how broken-hearted they are. And he starts off and he says, oh, slow of heart and foolish, foolish, slow of heart to believe. Didn't you, didn't you realize that all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to this? They predicted that the Messiah would come, he would suffer, he would die, he would be raised again on the third day. It's all there. It's in the Old Testament. A little bit later in that same chapter, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples and he basically says the same thing to them. He explains the scriptures to them and says, don't you see that in the law, the prophets, and in the writings of the Psalms, they all speak of me. I'm there if you have eyes to see. Now in that instance, the grand piano is playing, but these guys, blinded by their grief, deafened by the crushing of their dreams, they they can't hear it, they can't see it. The Gospels and the Epistles that constitute the New Testament are deeply embedded in the symbolic world shaped by the Old Testament. There will be portions of the New Testament, frankly, that will be incomprehensible to you if you don't know the Old Testament. You go to the book of Hebrews and try and read that without an Old Testament background and you'll be lost by, verse, by about verse 5 of chapter 1. You try and go to the book of Revelation without an understanding of the Old Testament, and it'll be a mystery. I mean, it's a mystery to most of us anyway. But it'll be even more of a mystery if you can't hear the grand piano of the Old Testament playing because there are just quote after quote after quote from the book of Revelation in Hebrews from the Old Testament. There are at least 300 direct quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament scriptures. That's about one every 22 verses. And and there are also in the New Testament what we call types, allusions, and echoes of Old Testament passages. Not direct quotes, but clearly linked to portions, characters, events in the Old Testament. Numbers of the types and allusions and echoes vary, but some scholars conservatively say probably around 4,000 echoes and allusions and types of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, as Inuits... Oftentimes, these allusions and echoes, they aren't heard by us. We, we don't hear the grand piano playing. A Hebrew audience steeped in the Old Testament would hear it, but for you and I, often it's inaudible. Now, you could be saying, well, Don, I understand direct quotes, of course, and I think I understand types. You know, I know in the Old Testament there are people and sometimes events that picture something that will unfold in a parallel form in a later person or event. I, I, get, I get that. You know, the Passover lamb, perhaps Joseph's life. I can, I can see how they are reflected, for example, in the life of Jesus. I get that they are types. But what, you, what do you mean, Don, when you say echoes and illusions? Well, let me explain. I know I'm laboring this, but in the light of the radical advice to jettison the Old Testament, I need to press this further. It's so important that we understand how important the Old Testament is to the story. Um, A very wealthy man by the name of Warren Buffett wrote a letter to his shareholders after an economic downturn advising them to adopt a really cautious attitude toward the optimistic projections of economists and investing rating agencies. And Here's how he phrased his counsel. He said, beware of geeks bearing formulas. Now that's a cute 
echo or an allusion to a very common proverb. I don't know whether you know what the proverb is, but it's beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Now that proverb comes from a story, and uh, I, I presume most of you have heard the story of the Trojan horse, how the Greeks managed to capture Troy by virtue of a, what, what the people from Troy thought was a gift. It was a horse which contained warriors inside, and once they wheeled it in and left it there during the night, the warriors came out, opened the gates, and the Greek army came back. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And here's Warren Buffett saying, beware of geeks bearing formulas. Now, you, you see the illusion. If you don't know the story or the proverb, that would just go completely over your head. Without the knowledge of the background of the story and of the proverb that it's derived from, Buffett's rhetorical punchline would be completely lost on you. Another example of an echo occurred when Barack Obama became President of the United States. On the night that he was elected, he came before his adoring crowds, and he said this, on the arc of history, uh, uh, let, let us put our hands, he said, on the arc of history and bend it once more toward the hope of a better day. Now, if you're not American, it's probably, yeah, yeah, it's quite kind of, you know, articulate, sounds nice, got no idea what he's talking about. The reason we don't understand that phrase or the reason the piano is playing and you and I don't hear it is that most of us are very unfamiliar with American politics and we're not familiar with the civil rights struggles of the 1960s. And we never heard the stirring speeches of Martin Luther King, apart from perhaps that I have a dream speech. We never heard him say, however, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So when Obama says, on the arc of history, let us bend it once more in the hope of a better day, most Americans heard the piano. You and I, straight over our heads, because we're Inuits. That's so what the Bible is like. The New Testament works in exactly the same manner. Yes, there are direct quotations, at least 300 of them, of the Old Testament. And yes, there are events and people that are clearly types. But there are many more echoes and allusions than there are direct quotations and types. And unless we are familiar with the earlier parts of the story, we will, we will completely miss them. The great reformer Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther once said so very relevantly, there are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think it is a book that was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. But Christ says in John 5, search the scriptures for it is they that bear witness of me. Here, that is in the Old Testament, you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. It's a, it's a striking metaphor. It's a vivid image for the manner in which the Old Testament contains Jesus. He's wrapped, as it were, in the swaddling clothes of the law and the prophets and the writings. Now, I really hope this extended introduction um, will give you an insight into how important the Old Testament is. And if you're thinking, Flip, if that's the introduction, we could be here for a while, I want to let you know the second part is not as long as the introduction, okay? When Jesus spoke of the Scriptures, he was, of course, referring to the Old Testament. When it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, given for teaching and instruction, 
The New Testament isn't, isn't even been collated yet. It's not talking about the New Testament. It's actually a reference to the Old Testament. Of course, it's true of the New Testament as well. But Paul wasn't speaking of the, Old, of the New Testament. He was speaking of the Old Testament. I'd like to suggest to you that it's these ancient Jewish scriptures that actually helped Jesus understand who he was and what he was called to do. If you like, it was the Old Testament that helped Jesus understand Jesus. Now, for some of you, that might seem like a strange thing to say. You might be thinking, well, Don, surely didn't he know who he was from the very start? Well, I don't think we should imagine, or I don't think the scripture teaches, that he went around as an omniscient toddler, knowing everything. Clearly he didn't. Clearly he didn't. Luke makes that point in the gospel. He says that Jesus grew as any other human child did. In Luke chapter 2 verse 52 it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favour with God and with men. What I think did happen as Jesus was growing and as he was, as all Jewish boys were, soaked in the scriptures, there came an increasing awareness of the special relationship that he had with God. And we see that developing in that 12-year-old that sat in the temple questioning the scholars with such profound questions that they were amazed. I'm, I'm convinced that the genetic code of Jesus' personal identity and the shape of his mission were actually provided to Jesus by the Old Testament scriptures that he read. Who he thought he was and what he thought he had been called to do developed as he spent time in those sacred Jewish texts. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, there's this rich tapestry of figures, historical events, prophetic pictures and symbols in which Jesus saw his own face. It provided, as it were, a mirror in which he saw his own reflection. And that was confirmed, that growing sense of who he was and what he'd been called to do was confirmed at the moment of his baptism. As he goes down to the Jordan River, is baptized by John, comes up, the heavens rent apart, the Spirit of God comes down and he hears his father's confirmation of his true identity. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I don't know if you know this, but those words that meant so much to Jesus weren't entirely new. They, they actually are a combination, echoes of at least two, if not three, Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 2 in verse 7, where it says, You are my son, my beloved son. You are my son. A Psalm 2, by the way, is a psalm that is regarded as messianic. It was probably at the coronation or, or spoken or written for the coronation of David. Jesus is the seed of David, so this psalm becomes particularly appropriate and is quoted in the New Testament probably more than any other psalm, maybe with the exception of Psalm 110. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And then it says, but the Lord sits in heaven and he sees that rebellion and he laughs. And then he says to his anointed king, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance, the nations for your possession, and you will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, hear that. 
You'll rule them with a rod of iron. In the book of Revelation, at least twice, it talks about Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron. That's an echo to this psalm, messianic psalm. And so as Jesus is introduced on the public stage at his baptism, you are my son, this day I've begotten you, is echoing in the background of those words. Not only is Psalm 2 there, but Isaiah 42 is there as well, where it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now, it's taken from the portion of Isaiah where we're about to be introduced to this mysterious servant figure in Isaiah. There's about four or possibly five servant songs where it focuses on this figure. And without doubt, it's messianic. It's talking about the, the, the one who will come and work out God's purposes. And this is the beginning of the servant song. Here is my servant in whom I delight. This is the son that I love. So we've got Psalm 2. We've got Isaiah 42. We've got Genesis 22 verse 2 where Abraham is told, take your son, your beloved son, and offer him on the altar. And, uh, you know, the binding and offering of Isaac is one of those types that, we, that I talked about before, where he's taken by the father up and he's about to be sacrificed. At the, at the time that Abraham is about to s- sacrifice him, the angel steps in and says, hold your hand, hold your hand, don't do it. I'll provide the lamb myself. And thousands of years later, here is the lamb. John the Baptist points at him and says, behold the lamb of God. And the father, in this instance, does not hold his hand back, but offers his son. That phrase, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is a compilation of Old Testament passages. they, They are not entirely new. Now, what was new was the way the passages are brought together and related to a single person with a unique identity and a unique mission. The awareness that God was his father and he himself, the beloved one, was the deepest foundation of Jesus' selfhood. His self-identity was deeply rooted in and affected by, shaped by the Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament ideas. You can't talk about Jesus or, or the Messiah figure coming in the Old Testament without at least three main themes coming through. Number one, he's going to be the king. And it says that in Psalm 2. You know, you will rule them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth, for the Lord will rule, and you better bend. Because if you don't bend, you'll break, because he is the king. Psalm 72 is another one. There's this idea of David's seed, a king who will rule forever. There's also another theme that comes through. You can't miss, and it's servanthood. It's, and I mentioned already servanthood from, from the, the servant songs of Isaiah. And mixed in with the servant songs is this idea of suffering. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. This mysterious figure who will be a king and yet a servant and who will suffer. How do all of those things fit together? The Jewish people didn't know. It's probably one of the reasons they missed Jesus when he came because they all coalesced. They all fused in Jesus. He saw those things. He saw them as he read the Old Testament and saw his face in those passages. Mark 
10.45 is sometimes called the central verse of, of Mark's gospel, and it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life as a ransom for many. Compilation of Old Testament scriptures. Here's Jesus talking about his mission, and he's drawing from the Old Testament as he does it. That phrase, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He didn't dream it up, and it wasn't just a way of saying, Hey, I'm just a human being. The Son of Man comes from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom, because he's a king. Glory and dominion and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Here's Jesus talking about his mission and saying, I'm the son of man. I'm Daniel's son of man. That must have been difficult for the people who understood the grand piano of the Hebrew scripture saying, you are the one who will come before the ancient of days. What are you talking about? You're a carpenter from Nazareth. We know your family. No wonder they got offended with him. He was making such outrageous claims. So he draws from the Old Testament scriptures and he goes on to say, uh, I'm here and I will suffer for many. That's drawn out of Isaiah 53. My righteous servant shall justify many for she, he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus clearly understood himself as fulfilling the mission of Isaiah's mysterious servant figure. And later he was to say in Luke 22:37, it is written and he was numbered among the transgressors. He's quoting Isaiah 53. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what was written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is drawing so profoundly and deeply from the Old Testament scriptures because we don't know them the piano plays and it just goes straight over our heads and that's why I'm saying we should be a people of the book the whole book because the second part of the book draws from the first part and as we read the first part the second part makes sense as we read the second part we can see the first part and what it was talking about Richard B. Hayes talks about reading backwards. He said, as we read backwards, we understand the Old Testament. As we read forward from the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of what the New Testament is about. So Jesus is drawing from Isaiah 53. He poured out his life unto death, was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Here, Mark 10.45 again, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He, he came to serve. There's the servanthood. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the suffering. Chris, um, Christopher Wright says again, the deeper you understand the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures are a gold mine. Now, the, the, the gold doesn't lie on the surface. Okay, and I know you have to dig. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search them out. You and I, Revelation says, are kings and priests. And as kings, the glory, our glory is to search out the things that God has hidden for us. He doesn't hide things from us. He hides things for us. For those of you who have got children or grandchildren, you do an Easter egg hunt. You hide the eggs not from them but for them. You want them to be found. God has a gold mine in the Old Testament, material that he wants you to find. It's up to you. 
I know they're challenging in places. There are places in the Old Testament you think, my goodness, what is this about? You don't have to get bogged down in it. When you hit the you know, genealogies of numbers, for, for us Westerners, that, that doesn't say a whole lot. We just think, why these lists of names? Who cares but their mothers? You know, I mean, does anybody really care about this? You go to nearly any other culture in the world and they'll tell you their genealogy. In fact, you don't have to go to another culture somewhere else. You talk to Māori people. They know their mihi. They know who they come from, where they come. It's really important. We Westerners sort of disregard it. But those portions of the Bible, for some cultures, prove the credibility of the Old Testament. It means something to them. I know it's hard to work our way through, but if you can stay in the, in the story... And, and read it in a good paraphrase or a good translation, you know, don't, don't try it in the King James, you know. Get, get, get the message or, or the Living Bible or something that, you know, will, will make sense for you. But, but don't just ignore it because it's hard. There's, there's gold in there. Don't do what so many Christians do when they say, oh, the Old Testament is law, the New Testament is grace, we are not under law, we're under grace. And they effectively jettison the Old Testament. That's not even accurate. I'll probably talk about this in a couple of weeks' time, but before God gave the law to the children of Israel, he gave himself to them as their redeemer. He redeemed them from slavery. The first 18 chapters of Exodus are narrative as to how God moved with great grace and great mercy and redeemed himself a people. After he had redeemed them and showed grace to them, he gave them the law so that they could live in that grace. The law was a charter for people who had experienced grace. So when people say, oh, it's Old Testament, it's, it's just all law. God did not give the Old Testament to Israel as a ladder to be climbed to get into God, God's good books. They were already in God's good books. He loved them and he redeemed them. He gave them the law as a way to express their gratitude and, and uh, so that they might be the people that they were supposed to be. The law... Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. Who do you know who is holy and righteous and good? Yahweh. The law is an expression of his nature. And as you read that stuff, you start to hear something about the Lord and something about his heart. Like Wright says, the deeper you go in the Old Testament, the more the heart of God you see. You say, well, Donna, isn't, isn't some of the Old Testament sort of been abrogated? Hasn't it been fulfilled in Jesus and it's no longer applicable? Yep. The sacrifices, the temple, the priesthood, yeah, the, the holy days, circumcision, the food laws. So is, that's just about the whole of the Old Testament, isn't it? No, it's not. That's what we call the ceremonial law. But on top of the ceremonial law, there's the civil law, there's the moral law. And as you're reading the civil law, you know, there, there are, that was the way Israel were, were to order their society. And, and he would say, you know, when this happens, do this. When you do that, then, then this is the result. Now, we read it and we think, you know what? When, when my bull gores my neighbor's bull and, and all this stuff has to be done, that, that's not applicable to me. You know, I, I don't get it. And so we read, we read over the top of it. What we need to do sometimes with the civil law and, and maybe less so the moral law because that's more straightforward. But what we need to understand is Beneath the civil law is this idea of God's care for people, his desire that we love our neighbors and that we look after them well. I said this morning, you know, um, we, we don't 
the law says, when you're building a house, build a rampart round the roof, okay, so that people won't fall off when they're up there. And you think, well, that doesn't apply. I mean, how many people live on their roofs in, in our modern-day society? Well, of course, not many, you know. And so building a rampart round the roof is probably not necessary, but the idea is look after people who are on your property. Care for them. Care for the people you love. You might want to translate that into build a fence around your swimming pool because there are principles that undergird the giving of the law. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about looking after visiting ministries financially, look, caring for visiting ministries. And he says, hey, it's written in the book of Deuteronomy, when an ox is trampling out the grain, don't muzzle it. Let, let the ox eat from the work that it's doing. You say, well, good night. What does that have to do with you and me? Well, Paul says, the lesson is not about oxen and, and, and oxen eating grain. The lesson is... People who do work should be able to be looked after from the work that they do. There's a principle there. Don't just read it and say, that's not applicable. What's the principle? And, and the law is full of gems. It's all about loving God and loving people. It's how people who have been redeemed by grace can order their lives in a way that makes them a light to the nations. Don't just, ju don't just dish the Old Testament. I've been talking so long off my notes, my iPad's turned off. <laughs> I want to conclude, okay? So musicians, if you come. I want to conclude with a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, this is one of the rewards of, re of reading the Old Testament regularly. You keep on discovering more and more what a tissue of quotations from it the New Testament is. How consistently our Lord repeated reinforced, continued, refined, sublimated the, Judea, the Judaic ethic. How very seldom he introduced a novelty. When people say, Jesus finished that story and he started something new, actually, he, no. He completed the story up to this point. He was the fulfillment of all of the story up to this point. He is the lynch point and linchpin of the story going forward, but the story hasn't changed. We've had Act 1, that's creation. We've had Act 2, that's fall and what's gone wrong with the world. We've had Act 3, that's the calling of Abraham and his family to be light to the world and to, and to, and to reverse what has taken place in the fall. We've had Act 4 the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those promises, all of the Old Testament promises, yes and amen in him, Paul says. Jesus didn't introduce something new. He didn't come to start a new religion. He came to fulfill the promises that God had made to Abraham and to Abraham's family and to create a worldwide family who would go forward and share the good news to, the, uh, to a desperately chaotic world. That's Act 5, and you and I are smack bang in the middle of it. And we won't understand it unless we understand Acts 1, 2, and 3, as well as Act 4. So be in the Old Testament, okay? Start to read it. Even if you don't understand it, get into it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.